Welcome to Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast, the podcast that takes the headache out of understanding peer-reviewed literature. As always, my name is Jared Adelman, here with my co-host... Madison Dix, is me. Yes, we are both here in virtual space. Now, just a few uh, short things of order before we start. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who has followed us on Instagram. And of course, you can always send us an email over at podcast at scienceandpictures.com. Um, we also, we did say this in the first episode and probably should have mentioned it a little bit more, but we are also partnered with a really, really cool project called Science and Pictures, which is what presents this podcast. But scienceandpictures.com is where you can see a lot of the art and artwork that's done so far. Uh, the first issue, all about sharks and what we really need to start doing for them, is coming out quite soon. Uh, we are going to be releasing that piecemeal, but yeah, scienceandpictures.com is what you should definitely check out. Also, uh, Dr. Bron de Montgomery, if you were listening to this, thank you so much for re- um, Is it a retweet if it's Instagram? Reblogging? It's a regram, I believe. Regramming. Um, regram. Uh, regram. Wow. <laughs> regram that recent post about uh, the episode that we did on her article, because that episode now has literally twice the number of downloads that any of our other one does. Um, so seriously, thank you for that. Also, I also you. got so excited, Dr. Montgomery. Uh, I did not sleep the whole night, so thank you for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, other thank you to Dr. Eric Jarvis for uh, liking the post that we did about his episode. Uh, thank you a lot, guys. This is just really, really cool that people are even listening to this and seeing this. Yeah, it's it's been really amazing. And actually, Jared, did you see uh, one of the other scientists from our uh, evolution of birds episode also liked one of the posts no i didn't see oh, yes that's awesome mm -hmm. oh, fantastic. i don't remember which one off the top of my head um anyway it was it was really really cool um so thank you so much dear scientists for actually um for giving us that support uh we're here to support you so that's awesome <laughs> absolutely yeah seriously thank you <laughs> Um, another, uh, thing of order, uh, last week, I think was the first week where we actually both said squash and nonsense at the same time. And we, did, we, we decided, it. yeah, so we peaked, um, as far as that section goes. And so we are now going to retire it. Um, but that's uh, right. You heard it here first folks. <laughs> <laughs> now we are going to sort of move that to maybe an episode once a month or so about squash and nonsense in general, because, this podcast is still about under understanding science in general, and to understand it, it's also important to understand that we're not perfect at interpreting it. So, you know, we've been wrong from time to time as far as, you know, humans and science in general. So we will still be doing those episodes every now and then. But Yeah, as... the thing is, there is so much nonsense out there that our squashing nonsense sections was starting to get longer than our article section. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we decided we'd just make that its whole own episode that's going to come out monthly. And instead... We're going to move our fun facts corner right up to the top. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the spirit of that, uh, Madison, I'm making you go first. All right. So <laughs> a fun fact that I learned this week um, might actually make some people upset. Oh. Are you ready to hear it? I'm ready. So what I learned this week is that even one serving of alcohol can disrupt your sleep patterns for a whole week. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? A whole week. A whole week. Your sleep patterns can be off because of just one serving. So like one shot's worth or two beers or one glass of wine. Wow. Now, thankfully, I was very, very lucky to inherit my father's two-day hangovers, which sort of like conditioned me away from alcohol forever almost. But <laughs> wow, still good to know. 
It's interesting because a lot of people think of alcohol as actually a sleep aid or people use it to sleep. Um, but it totally shuts down basically your slow wave sleep, which is the type of sleep that actually helps you recuperate. Um, yeah. And it also disrupts your REM. Which is another most important part. That's Jesus. I know. I know. So So um, if anyone is, you know, having a glass of wine after work and then finding that they're having insomnia or anything like that, you might want to try cutting out the glass of wine see if it helps. Seriously. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, I learned this week and as the weeks go on that um, there is a marsupial in Australia, uh, particularly on Tasmania, called a patamelon, which to some people looks a lot like the extinct Tasmanian tiger. Um, oh, based on its name, I was going to think it looked like a padded watermelon. <laughs> its stomach does, because it looks like a, just a fat little wallaby. But um, oh, so geez. there is, I kind of believe this as well, but the last time anyone saw a Tasmanian tiger in the world was, I think, in the 1910s or 20s. Um, but there are some groups in Australia that are trying really, really hard to either set that rumor to rest because it's true or because it's not. Um, they genuinely believe that the Tasmanian tiger is alive, critically endangered, but alive in some patch of Tasmania. Um, there was a really, 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 really important uh, post uh, by one of the main people of those societies uh, that claimed that they had pictures of one, but it was showed to one of the kind of predominant uh, marsupial biologists in Australia, and he said it wasn't, but or most likely wasn't, but... He also said, get a lot of opinions, and there are some people, veterinarians and others, that do think it might be a Tasmanian tiger. So we'll see what happens with that. Ooh, it's sort of a will she, won't she. Indeed. Pat a melon she or pat a won't she. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) You're welcome for that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I wonder. It's kind of like cryptozoology meets real life, and I'm just for that. Yeah. When I think of the Tasmanian tiger, I just think of that. I mean, there's that one clip that you see all the time of it in that tiny cage, just walking back and forth, like the last known. Yeah. And the really big yawn. It makes me so sad. Yeah. So I I like the image of one out there in the Tasmanian wilds, just totally unreachable by human, human hands. I like that idea. I hope it's true. It would be really cool. I do. Mm -hmm. I really do. But um, yeah, that, that is our slightly depressing fun fact corner. All right. Uh, So those were our fun facts. Uh, Alcohol and Tasmanian tigers. Um, And now, because that was much shorter than squashing nonsense, I think all of our listeners will agree. um, (laughs) We're already ready to move into our article this week, which is what? It's already time. Um, so, um, as we've said before, our timeline is moving a little bit differently than everyone else's. And so for us, it's actually our last week of February. And so our, uh, most recent episode of our Black History Month articles. Um, so, uh, this month I found such a cool one and it actually focuses around the, uh, work among others of Dr. Shane Campbell Staten, who is actually the co-host also of a really cool podcast, The Biology of Superheroes. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it delves into the actual science surrounding different science fiction media. I listened to his one on Spider-Man and sort of the different aspects of biology of spiders that the, uh, movies got wrong and comics got wrong and right. And it's just really, really cool. So definitely check that out. Okay. True or false. If Spider-Man were accurate, he would shoot webs out of his butt, not his wrists. Um, Yes and no, he wouldn't be able to shoot it. The, the the spider sort of spinnerets are more like a spigot. They sort of form and then they sort of have to either let it fall out or sort of use their legs to pull it out. So there's no shooting involved. 
Okay, so he would have to pull it out of his butt. Yeah. <laughs> so, how fun with that image? <laughs> um, but, but in his uh, academic life, uh, Dr. Campbell Staten is an assistant professor at UCLA, and in his own words, an evolutionary biologist who studies how climate change shapes demographic history and adaptation over prehistoric and contemporary time periods. Basically, he studies how animals adapted to climate change in the past, their evolutionary history, and how they might be adapting to any current changes. That is super important. Oh, well so done, sir. Indeed. Um, his primary focus of late has been utilizing genetics, comparative physiology, and field experiments to explore how organisms with large habitat ranges, that's they live over really large ranges, kind of like squirrels in the U.S., um, are responding to anthropogenic or human-induced climate change, i.e. human-caused changes. Um, these include physical changes to habitats along with the climate patterns that they affect. Um, but uh, we're also going to introduce a bit of a new section as well. We like to call, should we try to say this at the same time? Or <laughs> Let's do it. Let's see if we can nail it. Okay. Okay. Three, two, one. Jargon Corner. corner. <laughs> you, went, you went much slower than I did, but this is our jargon corner. <laughs> um, what's jargon, you ask? Jargon is words that no one except for a small number of people know what they mean because they're super specific. So there's a lot of jargon in science, a lot of words that other scientists understand, um, but that the general public, i.e. us and our lovely listeners, hi guys, uh, might not be able to understand. So we're going to try to pull jargon out of the articles that we cover and define it for you in this little itty bitty corner before we dive in. So Jared, what jargon do you have for us? So we have three jargons today. Uh, one we've already talked about. Uh, two, we maybe we talked about one of one of the others, but they are convergent evolution, parallel evolution, and the Anthropocene. So let's start with convergent evolution. What's that? Convergent evolution. Okay. To my knowledge, convergent evolution is when two unrelated organisms, so two animals or plants that are not at all related evolve really similar traits to cope with similar habitats, even though they don't live in the same place and they're not related. So sort of like how um, there's, you know, leopards or jaguars who live in the rainforest with the leopard print. Uh, and then there's also stingrays that live in the ocean that have the same print. Those two animals are not related, but they evolved the same skin pattern because it's a very useful skin pattern for camouflage in dappled light. Exactly, yeah. Um, in science, I think the easiest way to say it would be like exactly what you said, two relatively unrelated organisms. But the important thing is that both of their common ancestors didn't have that trait, but these two organisms in the present now do. So yeah, exactly like you said. It's uh, one more example, birds, bats, bugs, and pterosaurs all evolving flight independently. There we go. Okay, yeah. cool. Convergent um, evolution. We've de-jargoned it. Indeed. Uh, now, parallel evolution. How's that different? Okay, parallel evolution. Now, I'm going to take a stab at it, but I don't actually know. Okay, so would parallel evolution be two animals or organisms from different time periods evolving in a similar way to similar changes in the environment? You're on the right line of thought, but it's basically, okay. it's basically convergent evolution inside the same family tree. 
Okay. So it's kind of like eusociality or like the queen type hive social structure, which popped up multiple times in the wasp family tree in bees, ants, and some wasps. Um, you just jargoned up a lot of it. What? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. So ants, bees, and wasps, they all share a common ancestor, right? They're all the same kind of insect. Okay. Ants, bees, and wasps. Related. Yes. Following so far. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, or some very specific species have a fun little social structure called eusociality, which is something that you don't see often, but it's basically, there's a queen and the queen is the only one that's allowed to reproduce. That means everyone in the hive is related because they are mothered by the queen. Okay, yes, I've heard of this type of uh, organization before. Okay, mm -hmm. so are you telling me that all bees, all wasps, and all ants operate this way in those groups or just a couple? So it's a couple, but the important thing is that um, those couple instances or those several instances all happened independently. Inside the family of ants, bees, and wasps, they didn't acquire it from the same common ancestor. It just popped up multiple times. So that's parallel evolution. Now, okay, and it, would be it would be convergent evolution if we were talking about like wasps, ants, and trees. <laughs> so that's the thing. These terms are super confusing and they're almost even a little outdated, which is why I felt I had to bring them up because, so it goes even a little bit further than that. These terms are generally meant to imply that parallel evolution always involves the same genetics and convergent evolution always involves different genetics. Um, that was when we are, our grasp on genetics was still a little bit more tenuous, but it doesn't really make sense to put it that way because we now know of many examples where the opposite is true in both cases. Um, take last week when we were learning about uh, vocal learning in that birds and humans use the same genes to have accomplished that. So, you know, that's convergent evolution, but by the definition, it would also be parallel evolution. So, okay. Yeah. So for our purposes, can we kind of use them the same? We can. Um, but um, just to note in this paper, they use parallel evolution because it's just one species that they're talking about. It's just different populations of that species. But, you know, they made the distinction. So I thought we might as well talk about it. Okay, so for the purposes of this article, convergent evolution is animals that are not closely related, evolving the same traits in response to similar habitats, and parallel evolution is animals that are closely related, evolving the same traits in response to the similar habitats. Yes. Okay, cool. Cool. And what was our last piece of jargon? The last one was the Anthropocene. Have you heard of that before? The Anthropocene. So that would be the current age of extinction that we're in right now um, caused by humans, right? So kind of, but only kind of because there isn't a general definition completely just yet. Okay. Um, so basically it all started around the year 2000, but it stretches a little bit further than that because it basically centers around how we age our planet or how we understand how absurdly old our planet is, which um, is about 4.6 billion years for anyone keeping track. Um, geologists um, historically have used successively older layers of rock to give names to different sections of time. So the longest sections of time are the eons, then you have the eras, we live in the Cenozoic era, or the modern era, we live in the, I want to say quaternary period, and then we have epics. Now those are a lot of words, you don't have to remember them. But historically, the epoch we're living in right now has been called the Holocene. Ah, there's a Boney There album called Holocene. Is there? Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's a fun fact. Um, Holocene. <laughs> but um, basically, in the year 2000, a pair of scientists argued that the human impacts uh, that have been made to our planet have warranted the naming of a new epoch, or the Anthropocene, Greek for Age of Man. 
Now, aha, Grimes has an album called Anthropocene. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, some scientists don't like it, though. Uh, there is bitter, and I mean bitter, ongoing debate as to whether the Anthropocene can be officially included in the geologic timeline, because technically, for something to be inside the, the geologic timeline, it has to have made a bit of a signature inside rocks, and it takes millions of years for that to happen, so, you know, it's a bit unreasonable to ask that of the Anthropocene. Um, but that's why the, that's one of the reasons the Geologic Society has been so hesitant to actually start calling this time the Anthropocene. I feel like when they look back on the Anthropocene, if there is a they, um, it won't be a layer in rock. It'll be a layer of plastic in between rocks. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, but <laughs> because of that type of argument, um, a lot of the debate around the Anthropocene is whether it should be spelled with a capital A or not, because the capital A would denote that it's an actual geologic period. And that's what a lot of the debate is centered around, which I just think is a little silly. That is, it, that seems like they're wasting a lot of energy arguing about a capital letter when they should be focusing on their, their energy on maybe, I don't know, stopping the Anthropocene extinction. They are, which is why a good percentage <laughs> of scientists, including Dr. Campbell Staten, have taken to using it anyway, rather than wait for geologic societies to finally make their final verdicts. Which okay, I good. Yes. yes, I respect that very much. They can keep arguing if they want to, but to me, that sounds like wasted energy. It is. And, you know, it's used a lot. And so we should probably just, you know, start doing it um, as eloquently as I just said that. But I like it. now, oh, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, time for our article. So of March 9th of last year, uh, Dr. Campbell Staten was the lead author of a paper titled, okay, this is a long one, uh, Parallel Selection on Thermal Physiology Facilitates Repeated Adaptations of City Lizards to Urban Heat Islands. Uh, this was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. It's a long title. Long title. Mm -hmm. If I were to rename this paper, I would call it City Slicking Anoles Are a Lot Hotter Than Their Forest Counterparts. Ooh, City Slicking Anoles Are Hot. <laughs> What's an anole? <laughs> so, <laughs> an anole is a kind of lizard. Uh, some people think that they're closely related to geckos, uh, but that's actually a case of convergent evolution, is them evolving those towpads at the same time. Um, but anoles, I don't want to slander myself here because I should know this being a reptile person. I want to say their closest relatives are the iguanians, the iguana type animals. But um, at any rate, they are a type of lizard, a type of lizard that makes a living in trees, generally. Are these like the little green and brown lizards that you find in like, like Florida? Yes, yes they um, are. Or if you go on vacation in the Caribbean and they're just like always on the screens everywhere? Mm-hmm. Um, the males okay. also have what's called a dewlap, which uh, people would be able to see as this little flap of skin that they will sort of display towards females. Oh, which under is their really, chin. Really cute. Yeah, yeah. Is it under their chin? Okay, yes, I've seen that. So, okay. It's super cute. Are these also the lizards that can regrow their tail? So most lizards can. Um, or huh. no, well, no, I shouldn't generalize like that. Um, most lizards that drop that do drop their tail because a lot of lizards don't drop their tail, but most lizards that drop their tail will grow it back. It's not going to look like normal, but it will grow back. Cool. Okay. Um, if you want an example of one that doesn't grow back its tail, that would be the crested gecko or our friend Annie's gecko. Uh, not that anyone but us knows who that is. Shout um, out to Annie if you're listening. Annie yeah. has a really cute gecko. Um, Lem is gorgeous. Um, but yes, that is the Anoli. Okay. That yeah. is the Anoli. And is there a reason we call it Anoli and not an Anole? 
I did a little bit of digging on this, and it entirely depends on... <laughs> I think most of it centers around what part of the world you're from. Um, the genus name, uh, the scientific classification for them, is Anoles or Anolis. Um, so some people go off that. Some people say Anol, Anol, Anoli. What I've gathered is it doesn't matter. Just say what you want. <laughs> All right, so it doesn't matter how you pronounce Anoli, and it does not matter whether or not Anthropocene is capitalized. Cool. Yes, stop <laughs> letting people yell at you for stuff that doesn't matter. Um, but <laughs> yeah, love that message. Indeed. Um, so, let's get started. Um, evolutionary speaking, uh, uh, wow, evolutionarily speaking, it's reasonable uh, to assume that organisms might find similar ways to adapt to urbanization. Uh, what is urbanization? Madison? <clears throat> urbanization would be um, people moving in and then more and more people and then changing it to make it more and more like a city. Exactly. And I like that you said more and more like because um, a lot of what happens or a major consequence of the expanding of urban areas is a scientific term called ecological homogenization. Want to take a stab at that one? Ecological homogenization. Yes. Okay. So that would be the species of plants, animals, and fungi in an area. Um, Not the animals, becoming... but the habitat. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> You're very close. Okay, so the habitat... <laughs> Wait, no, well, now I'm confused. I would say ecological homogenization would mean, like, all of the animals and plants in an area losing diversity. That's a consequence of ecological homogenization, but it's not directly that. Okay. So, so the, ecological homogenization would just be the habitat or the surroundings becoming all the same instead of a bunch of different stuff. Exactly. Basically, major cities are more physically similar to each other than they are to surrounding unmodified habitats. It's a that trend is we see very across true. the planet. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, so like... I noticed this a lot when I um, when I was traveling. Like, if you look at, let's say, like New York City, Berlin, and London, all of the cities are very similar. But you move into the countryside, the plants and animals are completely different. Exactly, they're a lot more diverse, right? <laughs> yes, they sure are. Um, so this similarity in an evolutionary sense, talking about natural selection, it's kind of implies that natural selection is going to operate in cities fairly similarly across the globe, right? Yeah, it would if cities have setting up a similar ecological thing going on, then, I mean, if we were talking about convergent evolution, you'd see animals evolving similar adaptations in cities all around the world, even if they're really far away. Precisely. Um, so one of the things you see a lot of in cities is called the urban heat island effect, or basically this is when things like concrete buildings or surfaces or whatever they use to make streets, I think it's asphalt or something. Um, I don't really know. <laughs> it, it, uh, is it asphalt? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know about construction terms, but what can I tell you? It's, it's hot tar and gravel and it's all dark colors. Yeah. So that's the problem. Um, mm -hmm. All that heat is going to be absorbed and it's going to be re-emitted everywhere. Uh, that's going to do it significantly more than things like trees and soil that would exist in a more naturalized environment. Yeah. I once stood without moving for like 20 minutes on a subway platform in New York City and I sweat so much, there was like a me-shaped imprint on the ground underneath me. <laughs> See, that's just ecological homogenization at work, because I felt the same yeah. way in the Boston subway. Just standing, not even moving. Meanwhile, people who didn't live on Manhattan, people who lived in like upstate New York, 
totally fine. Like 75 <laughs> degrees, just chilling. Me, literally baking because Manhattan is a giant oven. <laughs> Great times, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but yes, her urban heat island effect is, it's everywhere. Um, but as a result, the temperatures within cities, uh, as Madison very, very graphically described, um, can be substantially hotter than the habitat surrounding them. So in this study, Dr. Staten and co. Uh, investigated the evolutionary effects of urban heat islands on the physiologies of some very tiny, cute lizards, which of course is the- Anolis! Yes, the Puerto Rican crested anoli, which is Anolis crystallatus. Um, you told me once that I should say Latin a lot slower. Um, Anolis- Crystallatus. Anolis crystallatus. Mm-hmm. Love it. This is, they're really, really cute too. Uh, and you should pause right now, look up the picture. Welcome back. Um, while normally adapted, <laughs> <laughs> while normally adapted to the forests surrounding Puerto Rican cities, uh, populations of this anoli have taken up residence in adjacent urban areas on multiple occasions, including the cities of Aguadilla, Mayaguez, Arecibo, and San Juan. In these four cities and their neighboring forests, uh, those were the areas that were sampled for the study. So four cities and the forest that surrounds each city. All right. So we got four cities. I'm assuming these cities are pretty similar, pretty homogenous. Indeed. Um, and then so, we've got forests near the cities. Are these forests also pretty homogenous? Um, hard to say. Homogenous in that they all support the Puerto Rican Crested Anoli, but the Crested Anoli also can adapt to a lot of different scenarios, as we're going to realize. So that's right, a good cool. question. I'm not sure of the answer. All right. Um, but, uh, so in Guys, total... Guys, I stumped him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good job. Um, a total of 150 anoles uh, from the four habitat pairs were collected, and they had their DNA sequenced to measure uh, basically... So I'm going to be throwing, there was, this paper was very heavy on genetics and I need to apologize beforehand. There's a lot of, a lot of gobbledygook to get through. But so here's a term, population admixture. You know what that is? <laughs> no. So basically, if you were to look inside one of these cities and forests, the anoles would be a lot more closely related in just that city and that forest. And that's what you see four times over. So that basically all but proves uh, because the DNA is like 90 to 99% between the cities, but only like 1% to 10% in between them, this was four different events of colonization. So these are four different populations of anoles. Okay, I understand. So like by looking at the genetics in the different cities of the anoles, they found that they're distinct populations, um, that the anoles in each city are really closely related to each other, but not closely related to the anoles in the other cities. Yeah. And another thing about that I found really, really cool was that um, three of these cities are pretty close together. San Juan is sort of much, much further away. And the three cities that were closer together had higher levels of admixture than any of them did to San Juan. Oh, okay. So the, the cities that were close together, the lizards, the anoles living in those cities were more closely related to each other than they were to the anoles in the faraway city yeah they had like two to five percent more overlap which isn't much but it did happen all right makes sense yeah thank you, got, you for explaining that some... better than I did. oh no that's what we're here for where i'm i used i'm royal now the royal we it's what we're here for <laughs> jack, jack is on my lap <laughs> oh hi jack mr void jack, jack is a cat um <laughs> for anyone who is wondering jack is a black cat and yes i do call him the void sometimes but that's not what we're here to talk about <laughs> he is a little guy though um, He's a little guy. 
So next, they took some temperature data, and the temperature data basically verified the urban heat, heat island effects. Um, overall, in every city uh, compared to its uh, paired forest, it was about 0.66 degrees Celsius warmer. Um, no, I'm sorry. It was 0.46 degrees higher across the year. Um, the winters had warmer minimum temperatures, and it was about 0.3 degrees higher in the summer overall. And that might not translate to much um, compared to, you know, the way that we might look at it, but for the Anoli body temperatures, where they're actually spending their time, it varied by up to 3.4 to 2.88 heat degrees Celsius, which is a lot. Okay, so it was warmer in the cities than it was in the forests overall, no matter what time of year it was. And if you mm -hmm. looked at the specific places where the lizards were hanging out, it was more significantly warmer. Exactly. All right. So that actually made the Anoli's body temperatures run about 3.6 degrees hotter on average than their forest cousins. These are the same Ooh, species. Those are it's... those hot Anoli's in the city. Mm -hmm. You said in this case, is that bad for them? It's not because they've adapted to it. Sweet. Love it. Which is just bravo to them. But um, so <laughs> in terms of uh, maximum heat tolerance, basically it's a threshold at which an animal's body would start to fall apart because of the heat, um, which can happen for a lot of reasons, but... Mine is 85. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is probably like 60-something, because I'm a polar bear. Um, but basically, the, uh, the city anoles, on average, beat the uh, forest anoles out by almost a full degree of heat tolerance. So they could wow. sit in the same environments and be, not to say totally fine, but they'd be a lot better than, than the forest anoles. All right, so they can tolerate higher heat for longer periods of time without their body being like, I'm done! <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so such drastic differences in temperatures and tolerances pretty heavily implied that these anoles have modified their genetics in ways to better withstand the heat. So we're going to go a little bit more into genetics and stuff. So um, next, the author analyzed the full DNA, their full genomes, uh, the city and the forest anoles, for really anything telling. Um, and in three of the cities, um, Mayaguez, Arecibo, and San Juan, the Anoli genetics all diverged in the very same spot in this very same gene. Uh, it's called the RARS gene, um, and it makes these enzymes that... So, Madison, what do you know happens when a protein gets too hot? When a protein gets too hot, it becomes yes. denatured. Exactly. Um, it gets denatured and it gets unfolded. And that can cause a lot of structural damage in a lot of, of, of different areas of the cell, because if it's misfolded, it's just taking up space and it can cause a lot of damage. But this gene that was modified, um, because the Adoli's heat tolerance was so much better, it must have been modified to better withstand the heat. And this same modification in the same area of this gene happened in three of the cities. Okay, so in that gene, it's modified so that the proteins there don't unfold when they get too hot. Exactly. Um, basically, oh. the enzyme is more active in when the proteins are actually being made. Um, and because it's sort of more of a watchdog, when the body gets too hot, the proteins have a much lower chance of actually getting misfolded. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And a misfold in a protein in DNA, what would that do to an animal? Um, well... There are, in DNA, when, when, it depends on the organism, but certain organisms have, like, different levels of DNA that actually will serve as, like, a copy check. So when DNA gets miscopied, these genes are sort of going throughout the genome and making sure that doesn't happen. But for some animals, they have a lot more of those. For some animals, they have a lot less. Um, um, when they're actually making the protein, 
if it's misfolded, then it's just not going to do what it's going to do in the least destructive case. In the most destructive case, it's going to stick around and do damage. Did that answer your right, question? So, yeah, it does. So in the worst case scenario, if you have a folded protein in the gene, it's going to go on and do something like cancer. And in a less bad case scenario, it's just not going to do its job. So like some of the DNA that are being sent to, you know, rejuvenate your liver cells aren't going to do that. And then your liver is going to be like old. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. In the worst, worst, worst case, they turn into prions, which are basically infective proteins that we don't know how to stop. Um, so that's fun. That's what happens in mad cow disease and all that. Oh, yikes. Okay. But for these anoles, they've somehow adapted so that their proteins are resilient to this folding effect, even in higher than normal heat. Yes, indeed. All right, cool. Y yeah. Um, so again, previous work on this gene has showed that increased tolerance is going to lead to a lot easier dealing with environmental stress from those fo uh, for, for, from those proteins. And of course, in the city anoles, uh, that gene was about 20% more common inside their system. 87% uh, in the city anoles, only 65% in the forest anoles. Aha, so that gene is getting passed on a lot more where it's useful, which is in these hot cities. Exactly. Good old natural selection. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, exactly right. When they looked at the population maps, um, it was super duper common. And that means that it's very, very strongly correlated with a uh, wire tolerance to the temperature changes, which is really, really cool. And it's also signaling that just like they predicted, natural selection is operating very much in the same manner um, in these anoles in the majority of the cities. It's acting on variation that already existed, and it's optimizing it for the elevated temperatures. Wow. Okay, that's cool. Right? Um, yeah. That's... They found so... Oh my god, this was so cool. Um, so next... This is something that scientists can do nowadays. They basically expose an organism to some sort of treatment, and then they immediately sample their DNA. And so now we're going to get into gene expression. So basically, okay. when you have all your genes, right? Like um, in, <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> So I would, um, you have all your DNA, but if all your genes were active at once, your body would be making every protein it could possibly make, and you would probably die very quickly. Oh, I get what you're, I smell what you're stepping in. Okay, so like, the way that I like to explain this is like, our expressed genes are like, um, the cover of the book. And our genome, all of our ancestral DNA, is like everything inside of the book. If you tried to put everything inside the book on the cover, it would be a mess. No one would buy it. Yes, thank you. I don't know why mm -hmm. I'm being so technical today. Thank you for that. Um, no, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Squash that um, technicality. Yes, yes, very good. <laughs> um, but basically, they um, took these anoles and they kind of acclimated both city and forest anoles to forest temperatures. And then they expose them to city temperatures or like the maximum city temperatures for about two hours. And then at the end of that, they looked at their DNA to see which genes became active in different anoles. And what they found was that it's not just the one gene. There are networks and networks and networks of genes that function differently in the city anoles. And wow. the very high likelihood is that these are all connected to their heat tolerance. So we know what the RARS gene does. All of these other genes, we're still not quite sure what they do, but the fact that they're only active in the city anoles means that they're probably to help their heat protection, and we should figure out what they're actually doing. 
Hmm. Okay. Okay. So we know the one gene, we've isolated the one that makes their proteins not get all unfoldy, but mm-hmm. there's a bunch of other ones that are also only present in the city anoles, and those show up when we get them all hot. Is that right? Like, no, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And more importantly, it's in those same three cities. All right, so, so they all have something to do with heat, but we don't know what they're doing. Interesting. Exactly. So all of this together points to rapid, rapid, and multiple avenues of parallel evolution, all pointed to elevated heat tolerance inside cities, which is just so cool. That is fascinating. And okay, I mean, if it's too early to ask this question, you can tell me to put it in my pocket and we'll talk about it later. But... Um, so what this has me thinking about is how long have these cities been here and how many generations have these anoles had to adapt in this way? So that's a really good question. It's not one that they touched on in, in the uh, study, but well, they kind of did. Um, in the discussion, Dr. Campbell Staten was talking about the fact that Puerto Rican crested anoles have this innate ability to colonize different habitats inside their DNA. Like they have this huge amount of variation. So they've been inside this habitat and they've been experiencing a a lot of different habitats for a very long time. But in the methodologies and the languages they were talking about in this paper, them getting into cities is relatively recent. Okay. So these animals are genetically predisposed to adaptability. Yeah. Cool. Humans are too, by the way. (laughs) Oh, we sure are. That's why we're everywhere. Yeah. In evolutionary terms, that's called being a a generalist. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay. Want to hear the last part? Yes. So in a final effort to uh, gather evidence to make their case, uh, this actually happened over the course of like four or five years. Um, But uh, Dr. Campbell, Staten, and co. ran what's called a common garden experiment. Have you heard of these? A common garden experiment? No. Uh So, um, I'm sure you know about the whole feud of, like, nature versus nurture. Uh, yeah. Think about it all the time. Indeed. Um, common garden experiments are one way to investigate the exact roles that genetics, uh, nature, and or environment, nurture, play in an organism's visible or tangible features. Um, basically, they take two organisms from slightly different environments and raise them in the same environment to see what's different. Love that. Okay, cool. And what did we find out? Um, what we found out was really cool. Um, so basically, um, anoles from city and forest lineages were raised from eggs, um, onward into identical manners for around 2.9 years. That's a long time to dedicate to an experiment. Um, yeah, for an anole, that's like half of their life, isn't it? It's most of its life, unfortunately. Um, yeah. (laughs) In this study, they were euthanized at the end of it, um, which is an unfortunate way that we learn about the world, but... And was that because after they had been in the six in the laboratory settings for most of their lives, the scientists were concerned they could spread contaminants to the wild population? That's a possibility. Also, there was really no humane way to get the data they needed without euthanizing the animals first. Oh, okay, gotcha. So oh, I poor understand why. But... Yeah, I understand why they did it. I don't know if I'd be able to do that myself, but. Guess that's why I do the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, y'all do it. We'll just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, um, after they raised them for about two point nine years, same food, same uh, enclosures, and everything, they were exposed to again the very same heat treatments uh, that the other anoles did, and it was basically almost entirely the same. Um, almost all of these alleles that um, activated in the uh, other Sid City anoles lighted up, and a lot of it happened in very much the same way. So this okay, is okay. So that's showing that 
this is more nature than nurture. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, things like common garden experiments are one of the ways that we sort of, you know, pick apart the data. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so overall, this was a really, really cool example of something called adaptive refinement of gene expression. Basically, what we were talking about, how anoles are like super adaptable to, to different set of scenarios, they can sort of, in this instance, they took the parts of their genome that were really, really resistant against excessive heat, and they sort of repurposed them for this issue. Okay, cool. So like maybe once upon a time, Graham, great, great, great basil, grandpa anole lived in a place that was super hot and developed this way to survive it and then just tucked it into his pocket for all of his grandkids for hundreds of years until suddenly one of his grandkids was in a hot place again. Yeah, that was actually part of the sort of the pseudo discussion in this paper because it was uh, sort of sort of structured like one big one. Um, actually, no, that's the paper I'm reading right now. This was a legit discussion. Anyway, um, yeah, he basically talked about exactly that. We should be looking a little bit more into the life history of the Puerto Rican Crested Anoli and sort of seeing where it did come from and if we can verify everything you just said. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. It's also really fascinating to me that these genes can become active because of an environmental condition like heat. It's... It's something I can't really think about because my brain starts to hurt. <laughs> it's just yeah, the interplay mine too. between genes and the environment is something I will leave to Dr. Campbell's statement. Yeah, I mean, I that's just... fascinating. <laughs> that's like, that's sort of the first time I've heard of something like that happening um, because I don't look into genetics a lot because it's very complex. Um, oh, this article so, is hard to get through, but I am really happy I did. Yeah, I just, I'm like, I've been searching my brain for some sort of parallel. I, I'm always looking for metaphors or for, you know, connections. And I can't think of another example of something like this happening in a different animal that I know about or can talk about. It definitely seems pretty unique, doesn't it? It does. Really, really I, cool I've literally about. never heard about something like this before. This is fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of a newish area of research, too. He kind of alludes to in this paper, like how little people are actually delving into the ways that animals are adapting to really just city life in general. There's a lot of stuff about how animals are adapting to, to climate change, but cities are only going to keep expanding. So we should learn a lot more about how they're settling into the places that we live. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, when you said you were going to do an article this week about, um, you know, animal urbanization, immediately my mind jumped to like, you know, rats, raccoons, cats and dogs, those sort of animals. I didn't think about lizards at all. <laughs> it's um it's a bit unfortunate isn't it, that our state has zero native lizards i i lament that every day yeah by the way our state is massachusetts yes <laughs> we are looking snakes. to correct us yes we do have snakes um but no lizards no lizards sad days unfortunately but yeah. um to sum it all up bring it all back together uh this paper provides multiple lines of evidence for rapid parallel evolution in response to urban heel islands uh, this repeated appearance in multiple cities of a modified gene that protects against protein uh, tomfoolery suggests that this type of genetic adaptation may be a common theme in animals adapting to city life, not just in Olis. That's the important part, again. Um, even more amazingly, entire networks of genes and their different flavors appear to be selected for multiple times in different cities as well. So this is not a small change. This is a lot that their body has to do to actually adjust to city life. And thanks to Dr. Campbell Staten and co, we're a bit closer to understanding how animals are managing to move into this new habitat we made for ourselves. 
and whether we can predict the path that evolution will take in doing so. Yeah, I feel like this gives me a, a good feeling like anoles are going to do okay, climate change wise. Yeah, they are. I, I mean, if, if Florida is any indication, they are doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh, boy, All right. They are. They are wow, that's something I'm going to, that's, that's a line of research I'm going to want to continue to follow and learn more about. Could you tell me the scientist's name again? Uh, Dr. Shane Campbell Staten. Shane Campbell Staten. That's C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L-S-T-A-T-T-O-N. Cool. Okay. All right. Is this person on Instagram? Can I tag them in this week's post? <laughs> he, has a, he has a podcast, so I can almost guarantee it. Amazing. What's his podcast again? Uh, the biology of superheroes. The biology of superheroes. All right. Very cool. I'm going to be checking that one out. That's amazing. It's really good, man. Is there going to be a... Well, no, he doesn't make the superheroes, does he? I was going to say, is he going to make an Anoli superhero? <laughs> just, like, is really good at being hot? Oh, wait, that's all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you, Hemsworths. <laughs> oh, oh, this is, yeah, that is my discussion of this article. Are the Hemsworth Anolis? They live in <laughs> cities. They're very hot. They shed their skin uh, when they do movies differently, different costumes. Oh. Uh, do, now, now, Anolis do eat their shed skin, I think. So they that would have to imply that the Hemsworths are eating their costumes at the end of every movie. So we should look into that as well. because. All right, so that's weird. our, so hypothesis. Um, <laughs> Hemsworths are Anoli's um, experiments. Um, watch the Hemsworths. Watch the Hemsworths on set as they're filming a movie. See if they eat their costumes after they change out of them. If they do eat their costumes, they are Anoli's. Or at least we have evidence. If they do not eat their costumes, there's no way they can be Anoli's. End of experiment. It's undisputable at that point. Like either way. Mm -hmm. All right, stay tuned, folks. We're going to start doing some science of our own on Science of <laughs> After this study, we will progress to see if Gwyneth Paltrow is, in fact, a bird. <laughs> Ooh, or we'll have to see whether that goop stuff's actually making her immortal. Spoiler alert, probably not. Spoiler alert! No, because she's a bird. <laughs> They're already immortal and have blatant disregard for the law. So, you know, just uh, mm -hmm. be wary of what uh, she tries to uh, push on you. Is Gwyneth Paltrow a bird? Are birds real? Is Gwyneth Paltrow up? real? <laughs> <laughs> Just fabricating a search history. Oh, all right, well, peace this... a search history. All right. So I feel like we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. Um, we squashed squashing nonsense. And as a result, this episode is much more bite size. Um, it feels which, too uh, short because we didn't spend two hours squashing nonsense. I know, right? This it, It's very different. It's very yeah. different. Um, but if you have feedback about, now I'm talking to our listeners, if you have any feedback about um, what you do and don't like about these episodes, what you come for, um, what you think you could leave at the door, we would love to hear from you. Um, as I've said before, we are an itty bitty seedling of a podcast. We have just poked our little stem out of the ground we're barely starting to grow leaves um and we would appreciate hearing from you if you have things that you want to hear more about on the podcast um suggestions about length any, anything really we would love to hear from you uh we're here for you we're here for the people <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> yeah what we're trying to do here is make science more accessible make it more interesting and understandable for the general public 
um, get people interested in science who might think that it's not for them, because as we've discussed so many times on this podcast before, the more diversity we have in the sciences, the better science is going to be. Um, and that's one way to make a better world. So yeah. I want to make someone feel the same way that I feel after I read just the coolest thing I've ever read, which is usually comes from a paper like this. Um, Exactly. I want to bring that feeling to you all because it's- Get people jazzed about science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So if if these episodes have been getting you all jazzed, please let us know why. And if these episodes are a bummer, please let us know why Um, (laughs) so that we could reach out to you better. Um, I'm very excited- that we were talking before we started recording. We now have listeners in how many countries, Jared? Um, shoot, it's at least five. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to get a diverse audience as well. Um, yeah. So once again, you can reach us um, by emailing us at podcast at scienceinpictures.com. We also have a Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram at science underscore in underscore podcast. Um, And we do have a Facebook page as well. It's also science and podcast. Uh, You can also find our host website, scienceinpictures.com. So yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we're super excited to keep making these podcasts every week. You can look forward to an entire squashing nonsense episode every month where we squash all of the nonsense. Um, and yeah, that's about it. We, uh, we took our fun facts segment and we moved it to the beginning. So we don't have anything fun here for the end. Ooh, if anyone wants to write <laughs> us, um, a song, uh, we, um, you know, this podcast kind of costs us money, so we can't pay you yet, but, uh, we, we sure would appreciate it. <laughs> yes. If anyone wants to edit for free or write music for us for free, we would, <laughs> um, we would love to take that work and, uh, we would like to begin and end this podcast with a song. Um, yeah. So on that note, uh, no, uh, wait, 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 we aren't actually doing this. Are we? This is the end of the podcast about the the science. Podcast. It's science and podcast. And it's science and podcast. And it's done. <laughs> Thank God. So that's the song that we wrote. So if you think you can top it, let us know. <laughs> I think I have the voice of an angel and also a, um, a crocodile all in one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, goodbye, everyone. Should we we stop recording? Okay, bye. I think we got it.